Welcome to Fotografiska's Walk Along, together with uh, the photo, photo artist Helena Schmitz at her beautiful and also breathtaking uh, exhibition titled Thinking Like a Mountain. So welcome, Helena. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be in Tallinn with you and so happy to show my exhibition at Fotografiska in Tallinn. <laughs> So I think first, before we start with, uh, with really going into the exhibition itself, I would really love to uh, have our audience hear a little bit about your journey uh, to photography and what was it in the beginning that, uh, that fascinated you about photography? I was, I was actually fascinated about photography already as a child and I started doing photography when I was a teenager. Uh, and at that time I was photographing my family, putting them in different positions, and, uh, but I was actually also photographing nature because I had a very strong sense of connection and also I had very strong emotions about uh, the beauty. When I was out, I was a lot out in the forest playing and, and also horseback riding. So um, I started to photograph when I was uh, around uh, 13 years old, but then I got my first proper camera when I was 18 years old. So I think I have been interested in photography my entire life. It's the only thing I can do. <laughs> And I so. believe uh, it's it's interesting that I read that uh, since you were uh, since you were a child, you were quite obsessed with the subjects of infinity, uh, death, and also the passing of time. Yes. And, and can you tell true. us a bit more about that? Because that's also very strongly connected to nature or the cycle of nature. Yes, I think I was as as some children are. I was obsessed with thoughts and also had a lot of fear of death, but also thoughts on infinity and, and, and to realize that there were things I couldn't fully understand. Uh, and for me, I, photography was, was, had a kind of relation to this feeling and fear of uh, the transcience of being and time passing. So I, I felt in a way that I, I could hold back or hold on to things uh, using, using photography, which is, I mean, obviously, absolutely an illusion. But it was something about photography and that it was like a print of, it could also be when I saw photographs of, of uh, uh, relatives that were dead, but I saw them there, so alive, so young. So they were both alive and still dead at the same time. So I, I was very obsessed with this and I think, I think actually that's why I choose photography as a medium. And it's also a way of storytelling and, and to talk about storytelling it really brings me back to your, um, your university studies because you didn't go to study photography, uh, you instead studied actually the history of film and art and that yes. is also about storytelling. So is storytelling something that also um, kind of uh, accompanies your, uh, your work? Well, yes, but I think that film and photography, they're 
they are so so different. I mean, I under I understood that because I actually I took a course in filmmaking in New York at uh, New York University, because I mean. A film is the, the sum of many photographs put together, but I'm more obsessed with the, the one, the single, the single work, the single piece. Uh, but I think that film has influenced me a lot in, in my photography. Uh, and uh, for instance, um, Andrei Tarkovsky uh, has been uh, very important for me, but I think that the, the art of filmmaking has influenced me and I think also uh, it's the reason why I work with, with large format because I work with an analog camera, a 4x5 or 8x10, but I also show my photographs in, in these sizes and I think also it's because it's an inspiration of I got from, from film. But yeah, and Werner Herzog has also been a, a great inspiration. Uh, but I think maybe more Andrei Tarkovsky in the way that he lets elements of nature come in and to blend up and have a symbolic meeting with, with the culture, with the human-made culture. So yes, I don't know if that was an answer. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a brilliant answer. And actually, Andrei Tarkovsky is, uh, is a very, um, let's say, a common name here in Estonia as well, because mm. uh, he has uh, filmed a lot of his scenes actually in Tallinn. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a name that I think uh, almost every Estonian uh, remembers and, and knows okay. his works. And uh, I, I love looking at your photos because they are really um, reminding me of landscape uh, paintings. And I think it's, it's uh, highly due to the format that you use. And you mentioned also using the analog camera and the, and the large format. And that really allows us to see the large, uh, let's say the large scale, so, uh, so the big details, but then also to see those little details that, uh, that are always there in your images. Mm. Um, so maybe I think it would be interesting to, to delve into the exhibition now and in, in the opening uh, wall we see, uh, we see a photo titled Thinking Like a Mountain and mm. I know that the, the title of the exhibition comes from Aldo Leopold but, uh, yes. but can you tell us what this, uh, what this sentence means to you and how do you <laughs> put it in the context of your work? Yes, I, I, I read uh, Aldo Leopold when I was working on, on my exhibition uh, and, and uh, Think Like Mountain was uh, the title of a chapter in, in his book A Sandman's Diary. And I, I, I love this title uh, uh, because of its poetry, but also because uh, what humankind, what we have done using resources of nature as objects for for our needs for energy and wealth and uh, so and then i thought that uh, this title sort of gives back a kind of dignity to the mountain it gives a subjectivity back to an element of nature so so that's why i decided to to give this title to my whole, to the exhibition it's a beautiful title and it, uh, it really makes us think about uh, about this sort of uh, balance between uh, the man and the nature because I think we're, uh, we've been uh, for a long time thrown off this balance and I think yes. there's, uh, there's not a balance left anymore really and I think mm -hmm. this is something that you very strongly 
in a beautiful and meditative way uh, <laughs> also talk about in the exhibition. And maybe if we would look at the first room, um, there are two series in the first room. First, one of them is the hot spring and the second is uh, the river. And I think both of these uh, photo series you've taken in Iceland. So can you tell us a little bit more uh, about both of these series and, um, and why these matter to you that much? Yes, I will, I will also, because you, you asked about my background and my, my, that I have studied film, but also uh, history of art. And I think that when I have done this series, I have also been inspired um, by classical painting. And I also have in, in some of the photos references to uh, 19th century and also how I have used the light in my photographs because I have... Um, uh, I, I have photographs, these environments that has this impact of man that, that also have some kind of, uh, that is a wound or something destructive, but I have used this light, that I have used this, uh, the morning light or the evening light, or I have used skies that could be from a Rococo painting, and I wanted to juxtapose these two um, so not, not opposite, but I want to, to have this complexity in my work. So I have uh, definitely been, been inspired by classical painting. Uh, and regarding, regarding Iceland, I had read uh, about um, uh, Karanjukar, and this was when it was built in the early 2000s. It was many artists in Iceland, artists and, and uh, activists that tried to stop this from, uh, from happening, but it didn't work. Uh, and uh, I have been interested in, in, in this uh, exhibition of uh, the use of resources. So I actually started, everything started in Sweden with the forest series. So for me, everything, everything started, I, I have earlier on been working with a kind of uh, balance between uh, human and elements of nature, but also when it goes off kilter, like in the Kudzu project, for example. But this time what happened was that uh, it was an extremely hot summer. It was the summer of 2014, and we had wildfires in Sweden. We had the biggest wildfire that we have had in modern times. And it only took four, four years until 2018 when we had an even bigger one uh, that affected many parts of Sweden. Anyway, I was, I was out actually in the Baltic Sea. I was in my kayak when I um, felt the smoke coming from these wildfires uh, 400 kilometers away uh, from the central Sweden. So I decided to go there. Um, and to sort of document the transitions that this landscape would go through after the fire. And it's also something that it's an ongoing project that I still go there to see what has happened after the wildfire. Anyway, while doing this project, I, I realized when going there on the trips, how Sweden, how, how we have so little less of natural forests. I mean, it's tree plantations. It's uh, uh, these straight lines of trees resembling barcodes. 
So I decided after working with a, with a wildfire to continue to also portray uh, the production forests. And then after that, actually the last years, it's a big uh, discussion going on uh, with, uh, with Swedish forestry, which is also one of our, our most important industries. So the thing is that everything started with the wildfire, but then I con continued to do a project that was about forestry, because it was actually also a machine uh, that was working in the middle of the summer in the heat uh, that started the wildfire in, uh, in Sweden. And also the forestry, the modern forestry, and the way the trees are planted, because it's spruces, and they are uh, planted so close to each other, so it's very easy for the wildfires to catch fire. So we have actually created the, the most, um, <laughs> the best conditions for wildfires in Sweden, also because we have taken away the wetlands, we have dried out the wetlands to plant forests, and then with this um, way of planting only one kind of trees makes the wildfire, they have the perfect conditions. Uh, and this is also in my work, uh, a critique obviously against this and against the loss of biodiversity that modern forestry is resulting in. So that really shows what happens when, when the balance between the natural and the man-making is... Uh, is uh, of kilter, exactly. yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's, it's really sad to see that, and, and it's a beautiful series, the, the forest. It's also very sad to see, and, and forest for, for us here in Estonia is also very dear because almost 50% of our land is covered also by, by forest. Mm. So we and how is it in, in Estonia? Isn't the same thing that, that it's a crazy logging and that, that you're losing because we have we have to protect the, the old forests and we have to we have to also keep old trees i mean big trees and dead wood also because that is also the home for the, for the wild animals for the birds for the insects um, for the mushrooms for uh, yes i mean i mean we, i mean it's a, it's a destruction that goes beyond the wildest imagination and in a very fast rate because my work is also about scale because of course we need to use the forest of course we need to have forestry but we need to do it in another way in a more in in, in not in the, not this industrial scale in my opinion because we will also it it will hit us back in the end I think that's uh, one of the things that I love about your work the most is the way of telling these stories. Uh, mm. It's not uh, against anything, but it's mm. really to show us um, that it could be done differently and it should be done differently. And I think this is the only way that we can, we can change these things, is, is not being mm. against something, but rather uh, opening our eyes and, and showing us how it could be different. I, 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 see my, I see my work as a kind of meditation, uh, that there are meditations on contemporary landscapes. And I, I also, because people, uh, they want to say, 
or they ask me if I'm an activist artist and so on. I, I don't consider myself being, being an activist, but I mean, I sympathize with the activists. And I don't even consider myself being political. I mean, if somebody would ask me, are you a political artist? I say, no, but I'm sensible. I'm a sensible person. And I'm also, um, for the first time in my career, I'm kind of, I, I take the opportunity to, to raise my voice against something that I have experienced and that I'm obviously also absolutely part of because during my lifetime I have seen <laughs> I have seen so many changes I live in the countryside uh, uh, yes in the Swedish archipelago and I've I've seen I feel it in my whole body I see how the how uh, the climate changes are already affecting us so I just had to do something uh, it was not a decision to suddenly become a political artist or something like that came from inside. I yes, it came from my body, from my body. Actually, really. It, yes, exactly. There is, a, there is a term that I really like. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more. You, you often speak about neocolonialism. And, and I think that brings us back to the, to the third room or back to the first room where we started, which is the hot spring and, and the river. And then the third room is about the bedrock. And all of, these, uh, all of these three series, they actually talk about industrialization and, uh, mm. and what happens when industry takes over uh, the natural environment. So yes. we talked a little bit already about uh, Iceland and about uh, those, uh, well, we mainly talked about the hydroelectric plant, uh, power plant, uh, the Kauranjukar, and mm. there's also the Krafla uh, geothermal power plant. And mm. then uh, the third room, which talks about bedrock, uh, takes us to, uh, to Sweden, actually, to Aitik. Uh, yes. So can you tell us about this term a little bit and, uh, and what it means? Yeah. In my work, I have, I have traveled a lot. And I have been in South America, in the United States, in Namibia, and so on. And then I decided I wanted to do something about my own country. And I have also been, uh, I have done an earlier work on Linnaeus, uh, Carl von Linnea, we call him in Swedish, the famous botanist. And I was, I've also been interested in how we have related to, to botany, to um, ideas on nature. I have, I have worked together with philosophers and historians of idea. And um, I, I was interested also in Linnaeus' thoughts and how from this time in the 18th century, when, when Europeans were colonizing the world, and I also traveled in one of Linnaeus' disciples, in one of his footsteps in South America. Anyway, uh, today it has changed, so it's not uh, like before that it's, uh, it's countries that are having colonies. But I mean, companies are, this is the new kind of colonization I'm talking about. So I started to work in Sweden and then I realized, because I spent my time in Stockholm and in the archipelago, I had no idea when I was traveling north, because I had exhibition in northern Sweden, and I started to travel around there, that um, we have a kind of law, uh, uh, in Sweden that allows anyone from any country to come and uh, 
check out and prospect for mining. So I was outside a town called Geleftio and found a mine that it was a gold mine and I had no idea that we had gold mines in Sweden and that was run by a Canadian company. And mining is also interesting now when we are going to do this shift from fossil fuels because we will need mining like maybe never before in order to have uh, the metals and the things we need for the batteries. Uh, and I was interested in this shift from uh, countries colonizing to, to companies just traveling out, which is also, of course, a result of the globalization. So both Karanjukar and the, or this gold mine outside Schleftio is they are example of, of this. So I don't know if that was an answer to your question. Yes, definitely. I think it, it, it explains the, uh, the idea or the term mm. neocolonialism uh, mm. a lot. And when I think in the third room where, where there's the series about Isaac Mine, which is, uh, if I understood correctly, Europe's biggest active open uh, copper Pitch. mine. Yes. Exactly. And, and just to think about the idea uh, that in a few years' time or, or whenever the, um, uh, the copper is, uh, is all gone, then it will mm. become Europe's uh, biggest and deepest uh, lake. And just look at this uh, this natural, not so natural site anymore. It's mm. uh, it's breathtaking, and mm. I think it's interesting to look at your photos because they are beautiful. Uh, mm. Even if we understand that what is going on uh, at a closer look is not mm. something that uh, that we'd want to we'd want to see, but still your your photos are absolutely breathtaking and beautiful with the colors and 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 the way that they look. So how do you how do you see it through your camera lens? Do you see beauty or do you see destruction or are mm. they combined? <laughs> the thing is the thing is that um, it's a discourse going on about that whether it's right or not to sort of aestheticize uh, what we could call uh, uh, maybe destruction or maybe someone would call uh, art of engineering or whatever you call it. But I think in order to be able to, 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 to really to see what is going on, I'm working, with, I'm working with beauty and I'm interested in this doubleness, but I'm also uh, I'm also fascinated by the scale. If you look at, at uh, uh, ITIC, I mean, the dumpers, they are maybe four meters high. I mean, the wheels of the dumpers are four meters in diameter. You see the, the, the ice coming down from the groundwater. It is also breathtakingly beautiful at the same time. So I think... I'm looking for beauty in order to, to tell my story, in order also to make it possible to enter, to, to go into what I'm, what I'm looking at. Because I think if I, I, if I would go out in the forest and I, and I would take a photo in the brutal sunlight of a log forest, I mean, you can't even see a photo, you would just turn your uh, head away but I want you I want to play with this I want to play with this because I think it's more 
maybe more efficient also if you do it the way I do it. So I, I'm interested in this stubbornness and, uh, and also to, to try to, to see it in a new way, but also to try to grasp the, the scale of things, of the, um, the transformations and transitions of, of landscape and how things are turned into something else, which is also the case with, with Kadso, but in this case it's not done by humans. Uh, it's, uh, well... Done by nature. <laughs> yes. Mm. But I think it really, uh, really touched me deeply when, when I heard uh, or read when you said that there's almost no untouched uh, land by humans uh, anywhere else uh, to be found in the world almost anymore. No. And it's, it's interesting because often we talk about uh, Scandinavia or let's say Northern Europe. Uh, we, we see it as an advanced region, as, as you know, a place where people already have understood the importance of nature and, uh, and also have understood how to protect and how to value it. But, uh, but in, your, uh, in your case and in, the, in this exhibition, it really shows us quite, uh, quite the contrary. I mean, this is our Scandinavia, this is our Northern Europe. And, uh, yes. And it's, it's, uh, it's devastating. We have this, it is, and we have this self-image also in Sweden. Uh, but that was also what I was interested in looking at. So I wanted to look in the mirror. And then I, what I found was not so beautiful. <laughs> no, because, because I mean, what's going on in Sweden is it's a catastrophe because we are losing the last uh, wild, pristine, old, natural forests. I mean, and it's in a rate. And that's also because, as I said before, I think we need, we need to have forestry. We need to have mining. I mean, we cannot shift. Uh, but, but it's a scale of things and how can we do and it's it's huge problems because we need the bioenergy but how can we do that without destroying everything because it's like we need so much energy now also with this shift from fossil fuels so so it, we are facing huge problems but I I was interested in how does this manifests itself in the contemporary landscapes and also uh, working with landscapes I also wanted to show uh, like in the, the photographs from Iceland from Krafla from the hot springs uh, I wanted to also I'm also working with the with the image I mean with the image of the landscape what is a landscape so I wanted to maybe with the pipelines, instead of turning my cameras the other way around, I wanted to enhance the pipelines. I wanted to enhance what is sort of the scar or the intervenience of humankind in the photographs and, and to lift it up. And, uh, uh, but, but still, I mean, we, we, I don't want to point fingers, do you see what I mean? Because it's so complicated issues, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just affected about what's going on and what I can see also with my own eyes what's going on in Sweden now. And the more 
the more you learn and the more you train your eyes, the more you see. And I sometimes wish I had I hadn't started doing this. <laughs> I can but, imagine. Mm. And I think it's also one thing is to see what's on the photos. You can see the destroyed uh, forest, or you can see the huge. Uh, industrial big power plants etc but there's also a lot that we don't see so for example if we took the uh, if we took the copper mine the itic then it mm -hmm. affects also for example the sami people and their whole culture the way yes, of their life and that's not mm -hmm. something that we immediately understand but it's it's so much wider than than what just meets the eye exactly of course and also forestry because uh, the, the Sami people, they need old forests for, for the reindeers because, when, because of the climate change uh, in the winter they are, they are starving because the, the, first it gets cold and then it melts, so uh, then it gets ice and then the reindeer can't, uh, they need to come through the, the snow but they can't, so they need to eat, I don't know what you call this in English, but the things uh, it's called lavar in Swedish, lichen uh, maybe, it's called in English, so. I don't yeah. know. Uh, and then they need old, because they don't, they don't grow on young trees, they only grow on old trees, so they need this. So everything is sort of also connected, and it's true. But, I mean, maybe the last years, things are starting to happening a little bit, and we, we also because we put different industries against each other. So, I mean, tourism is also an industry. And maybe tourists don't want to go through forest plantation and they want to go through beautiful landscapes. So, so maybe tourism can help. And it's the same in, uh, maybe in, for instance, I don't know, I mean, in the rainforest and in other parts of the world. I mean, because logging and the, the uh, the logging of the last forest of the world is going on everywhere, but ecotourism and, and tourism could be something that could be put against that. Do you see what I mean? As yes, a, yes, definitely. Yeah. Mm. And I think that really, um, this whole, uh, it shows us, your photos show us this, uh, this holistic system. And I think that really refers back to the term thinking like a mountain, where Aldo yes. Leopold also, he wanted people to understand that we, we as people, together with mm. the, the animals and the nature, we form mm. a holistic system. And it doesn't matter which part of those, uh, those uh, three, uh, let's say, things uh, changes, it, it changes the whole system and it throws off yes. uh, the balance. And I think it's, it's still something that people find hard to um, understand. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we as humans are control freaks. We like to consider ourselves as the superior species. Uh, mm. But I think it's, uh, it's from time to time we've been reminded by the nature that uh, they still are the force majeure. And that if, yes. if nature wants, then, uh, mm. then you know, nature can destroy and, and do all sorts of things to either protect itself or to show its um, distress in a way. And I yes. think that really brings us to, to the last room of your exhibition, which is um, in a way one of my favorites because I just absolutely love the story behind <laughs> the Kudzu project. So, so maybe we can tell our listeners and, and our viewers a little bit how you came about this project and, and how did you learn about the story of, of 
the kudzu plant? Of the kudzu. Well, I have in, in periods of my life, I've suffered from insomnia. So, and also people ask me where I get my inspiration from, but, but I can get my inspiration from um, websites, just Googling, and, uh, or I can see a documentary, or I can see an, an, an artist's work. It can, it can be from, I mean, I don't have a specific source of inspiration. But I had been working with car carnivorous plants because before I, I started working on the landscapes, I was doing close-up of plants and I've done two books and I've also worked with uh, National Geographic magazine. So I worked with National Geographic magazine and did a story on carnivorous plants. And then I, I read, obviously, a lot of carnivorous plant, and I found it it's so interesting uh, because they sort of, um, uh, how do you say this? They multsay um, they they, they um, contrapose. How do you say they, they? They it's a completely other idea of a plant because you see a plant or a flower as something peaceful. Uh, uh, not moving around, but they are so exquisite in the way of um, <clears throat> both capturing, but then also eventually killing their prey. Mm -hmm. And then when I read about that, I, 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 was, I got interested in invasive species because I think it's, so, it's, a, it's a term from war terminology, and I think that together with the plant is so, so interesting. So That's I started looking... It's so controversial. I started looking for that and I found <clears throat> photographs on Kudso in United States. And, and, and here again, uh, it's also this transformation of, of landscape because it's landscape, but it's, it's, it's a completely transformed landscape into something else. Uh, and then also I read the story about Kudso uh, and that it was from the beginning of a gift from the Japanese people to the American people and then people started to plant it because it uh, created shadow in the American South and it was planted along the railroads to prevent erosion but that in the 50s people found out or the authorities found out that it was getting completely wild and it grows like 30 centimeters in 24 hours in all directions so it grows over roads, over houses. Uh, it uh, also grows over the trees, and it uh, actually not strangles, but it suffocates uh, so many other living species. And um, I decided to go there with my eight by ten camera. So I did that in the very hot and humid summer of 2012. Uh, but it was so hot and humid, so I had to go home <laughs> and go back there again. So I have done uh, two trips uh, through the American South to capture this phenomena, really. It really is, is phenomenal. Cancer. And I remember mm. that when I first uh, looked at the series, and it felt to mm. me like it was um, 
sort of the first half of the exhibition talks about how man uh, invades nature, and mm -hmm. then the last part, uh, as in Kutsu series, talks about mm. how nature invades. Uh, yes. But at the same time, if you think about how it all happened, it wouldn't mm. have happened if the people wouldn't have taken exactly. the Exactly. So it's it's actually it's it's the same story, but it it's the same. That's that's abs that's absolutely right because. This is, this is an infrastructure project, so it's not something that just came, because man moved these plants from Asia to the United States, and while doing that, uh, they had, this plant had the perfect condition to, to, to grow better than in Japan, because it's not so wild in Japan as it, but in the American South. And, we, and, and man did that in order for this to stop erosion. So it's an infrastructure. It started by man. And as you, you said before, that we are striving for control. Yes, we are. We are doing systems. We are, uh, we are planning. We do turn everything into abstraction, into economy, into wealth. But on the other hand, at the end of the day, we are so vulnerable and I think all of us know that because we are we have the atmosphere it's like a thin eggshell and without that eggshell or, or if we destroy it too much we we cannot we are all dead I mean we can we humankind cannot live survive I mean like any other animal or living being on the earth and I think that Every, everybody knows that, I mean, and that's maybe why also we are striving so much for this control, but I'm, I'm interested in this and I'm interested in the, the loss of control and this sort of tipping point. Uh, and I think many of my projects are about that. Definitely. And I think we seem to always forget that nature also has its own system, its own control mechanism. Exactly. And once we go against that, then, uh, then all hell breaks loose. And I think it's, it's also something that maybe we've been reminded now quite harshly with the, <laughs> with the recent pandemic that we are all going through. But, um, but I think it is an important reminder that... Uh, yes, because the pandemic, it's because we are, we are logging the forest like... So, we, so the wild animals are coming. Uh, I don't know if you have read Knausgård's uh, latest, I don't know if you know uh, Carl Ove Knausgård, the Norwegian author. He's very famous in Sweden. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but we are, the, the, like, when we're moving too close to the wild animals and we take away, so they, or people that are eating these wild animals, and I mean, then that's, very, that's, threat, that's a threat to humankind. So we have to live the <laughs> wild world. We, have, we, we can't destroy everything because we, we will die in the end. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I think it's been, mm. it's been a very shocking reminder, but, uh, but uh, nonetheless mm. a very needed one. Mm. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about is that um, your exhibition is accompanied by a beautiful sound piece, uh, almost yes. like a soundtrack to a movie, which is by Lisa yes. Holmquist. Yes. So can you tell us a bit more? L Lisa Montan, should, her name should be, because ah, okay. I don't, is her, it should be changed to Lisa Montan. Uh -huh. Yes, but she can also, I was, I was actually, I'm going to ask Maria if it's possible, because when I first did my exhibition in... Uh, um, in New York, uh, I believe. 
Uh, no, it was not in New York. It was actually in, in Stockholm at Wallemars Udda ah. in Stockholm. She also did a performance because she's, um, uh, uh, she's, a, compose, she's a composer and she's a friend of mine, uh, but she's a film composer. She, so she does soundtracks to films. And then I asked her if she would like to do a piece for my exhibition. So she did this piece, and it's also called Thinking Like a Mountain, and it's, it's actually composed specially for this exhibition. And it really suits beautifully, and it's interesting because I thought, was it because of your background in, uh, in film history, or was it, uh, but now if I hear that she's actually making soundtracks for movies, then it all comes together. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's a beautiful piece. Is, mm -hmm. is there something that you would um, like maybe our viewers uh, to know more about or something that you would recommend some other artist or a book? You did mention mm -hmm. a book already or something that... Um, but I, yes, I have books I, and they should be, I think I have, uh, um, that I have Thinking Like a Mountain is yes, a book. Yes, we do have the book here in, yeah. in the Fotografiska... Uh, and uh, also Cancer Project is in the other book because I think you have... Uh, Two books, mm -hmm. don't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have any uh, any ending words or, or something that you would like to uh, tell our uh, our visitors about the exhibition, or or is there a way to look at your exhibition? No. Uh, uh, what I think is because sometimes people ask me, uh, what do you want? What do you want the viewer to uh, think or feel and so? But I I think that when, when you have finished a project or when you have finished a photograph and when you exhibit it, it's something that you leave and a new process is starting. So, I mean, and that's so interesting because every person that will see an image will have its own experience and, and a new process will start. So, um, well, that's my answer to to that question. I think that's beautiful and this is uh, what will leave our visitors and our listeners, uh, listeners too. Mm. And we really hope to see you in Estonia, hopefully yes, in, in very short you. time. And thank you for, uh, for doing this walk along with us today. It was thank a you so pleasure. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.